The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible with you, I would love for you to open it to Judges chapter 6. We're going to be reading through Judges 6, 7, and 8 this morning and talking about Gideon. And while you're, um, while you're doing that, uh, just a couple things I want to let you know about. Uh, next Sunday, we're actually jumping out of, um, out of this series for a week. Uh, we're going to talk with uh, Zane, our pastor of Family Ministries, uh, kind of about what's, what's our vision for Family Ministries going forward as a church. If you remember when Cody was new here, we did that with him, um, just spent time talking about who he was, um, how he got into his, into his spot here at Westway, and we feel like this is a really crucial place for us as a church right now as we, as we look ahead and we look to the, the, the generations that we have within our body and how are we going to equip those who are serving in those areas, how are we going to equip parents um, in their roles of making disciples of their children and their grandchildren. If you, I uh, just want to remind you too, outside in the lobby, uh, we are, we're still registering people for the Grandparenting Summit here in a few weeks. And if you have not signed up for that, there are still a few weeks left. It's only $59 for two days worth of really great content. So I just want to encourage you, if you have not signed up for that, go out and do that uh, this morning on your way out the door. And then the second thing I just want to let you know about, um, this is Pastor Appreciation Month. And I want to let you know that over the past, uh, over the past week, I have received um, just so many calls and texts and emails from people in our church body um, letting us know that you are praying for us. And I've had so many people just recognize the, the season that we're in as, as we've, ex- we've had a lot of loss in our body over the last um, several weeks. We have, um, we have a funeral here tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. for Virginia Ojeda. Um, those are really difficult moments for our pastors to enter into. And I can't tell you how much just a, a one-sentence text um, to me has meant to me over the past week. Um, you have no idea how encouraging that is uh, to myself and to our pastors and, and all the things that, that they're doing to serve, um, serve you and to proclaim Jesus. So if, if you've sent that text this week or even if you've thought about it or you didn't send a text but you prayed for us, um, thank you. We felt every single one of those uh, prayers um, this week. So let me just, let's do a guilt-free, shame-free ask here. Who read Judges 6 to 8 this week? Let's see a show of hands. Okay, cool. So I'm going to read to you the study of, or the story of Gideon from the First Steps Bible. Okay, Um, I did not come up with this idea on my own. Um, There's a podcast that I listen to called The Bible Project, and a few weeks ago, they talked about the story of Jonah from the book of Jonah from the Old Testament. And what they did was they started just by reading this Bible story. This, um, it wasn't this particular Bible, but they read the story of Jonah from a children's Bible. So if you've, if you've read six to eight of Judges, I want you to kind of listen to what's going on here and kind of compare what you read. And if you haven't read Judges 6 to 8, I'm glad you're here today because we're going to read all three chapters together. 
So you can have a comparison. So this is, and this is, to be fair, this is only Judges 6 from, from the First Step Bible. Hello, my name is Gideon. God's people are living in new homes, but bad people are hurting us. Who will help us? God's angel comes to me and says, you are a mighty soldier, Gideon. You can help God's people. God will make you strong. So I blow my trumpet loud. Ta-da-da-da-da-da! And more soldiers come. Together, we help God's people. For those of you that read Gideon, or Judges 6 this week, seems like we're missing a few things from the story, doesn't it? We'll pick on the children's Bible in a minute. Let's read, let's read actual Gideon 6 uh, from, um, from, what, uh, from the Bible. Um, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. Notice the, begin, notice the change in the beginning. We will be here forever if I do it that way. The, Israel, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Wherever, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes coming with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord, your God. I, you must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. But you have not listened to me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Oprah, which belongs to the Joash of the clan of Ebiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Gideon replied, if you're truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it's really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go, back until I come, don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. He answered, I will stay here until you return. Gideon re hurried home. He cooked a young goat and with a basket of flour, 
he baked some bread without yeast. Then carrying the pot, the meat in a basket and broth in a pot, he brought them out and presented them to the angel who was under the great tree. The angel of God said to him, place the meat and the unleavened bread on this rock and pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and bread with the tip of the staff in his hand and fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all he had brought. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, O sovereign Lord, I am doomed. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It's all right, the Lord replied. Do not be afraid. You will not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and named it Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. The altar remains in Oprah in the land of the clan of Abiezar to this day. That night the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then they built Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole you you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord commanded. But he did it at night because he was afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. Early the next morning, as the people of the town began to stir, someone discovered that the altar of Baal had been broken down and that the Asherah pole beside it had been cut down. In their place, a new altar had been built, and on it were the remains of the bull that had been sacrificed. The people said to each other, who did this? And after asking around and making a careful search, they learned that it was Gideon, the son of Joash. Bring out your son, the men of the town demanded of Joash. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal and for cutting down the Asherah pole. But Joash shouted to the mob that confronted him, why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If Baal truly is a god, then let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. From then on, Gideon was called Jerob Baal, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. Soon afterward, the armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east formed an alliance against Israel and crossed the Jordan, camping in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. He blew a ram's horn as a call to arms, and the men of the clan of Abiezar came to him. He also sent messengers throughout Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. Those are tribes. Summoning their warriors, and all of them responded, Then Gideon said to God, if you're truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised, prove it to me this way. I will put a wool fleece on the threshing floor tonight. If the fleece is wet with dew in the morning, but the ground is dry, then I will know that you are going to help me rescue Israel as you promised. And that's just what happened. When Gideon got up the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung out a whole bowlful of water. Then Gideon said to God, please don't be angry with me, but let me make one more request. Let me use the fleece for one more test. This time, let the fleece remain dry while the ground around it is wet with dew. So that night, God did as Gideon asked. The fleece was dry in the morning, but the ground was covered with dew. So that's actually Judges 6. Let's read, let's read this again. Hello! My name is Gideon. God's people are living in new homes. 
but bad people are hurting us. Who will help us? God's angel comes to me and says, you are a mighty soldier, Gideon. You can help God's people. God will make you strong. So I blow my trumpet loud. Ta-da-da-da-da-da! And more soldiers come. Together we help God's people. I want you to think about how, how this compares to the fuller story of what's going on in the book of Judges. There's nothing about sin or repentance or rejection of God or judgment anywhere to be found in this. Someone made the decision that out of all of the judges that we might want to share with a, with a toddler, someone made the decision that, that Gideon was that judge. And then they completely misrepresented what happened in the story. Now, I know that this is a children's book. We're not going to open up and we're not going to read the story of Eglon emptying his bowels after he's been stabbed, right? We're not going to read the story of Jael putting a tent peg into someone's skull. But, but here's, here's sort of the issue. Is some of us in the room have never, ever, ever moved beyond the toddler version of their faith. Some of us have, have heard, have read the story of Gideon or, or have heard parts of the story of Gideon, but what we've heard is an incomplete version. My guess is, as I was, as I was reading through that, unless you've read the story before, there wasn't a lot of familiarity until the very end of the chapter with the fleece, Right? God, if you want me to do something, I'm going to lay out this fleece. But when we have the, the childish version of what's happening in the book of Judges, we, we kind of assume that the Israelites are just hapless victims of, of these really bad people. When the reality is they turn their backs on God. And I know we sort of talked about this last week. Like, just because bad things happen to us doesn't necessarily mean that we've committed some sin and God is angry with us and he's going to judge us because we live in a sinful world. But the reality for the Israelites at the time of the judges is this. They were bad people. They rejected God. They weren't doing what God was calling them to do. And he brought them out of Egypt and he rescued them and he gave them everything they could ever need and frankly, everything likely that they could ever want. He told them who he was, told them not to worship the Amorites and, and this was their response. And this is why a few weeks ago when we read through Deuteronomy, from large and prosperous cities they didn't build and houses filled with goods they didn't create to hiding in mountains, caves, and strongholds. See, when they entered the promised land, they were given vineyards and olive trees that they didn't plant, that they could eat of, that they could take crops from as much as they wanted. And now they have destroyed crops and no animals. See, the people have done the exact opposite of what God told them to do. They heard all of these things, they were given all of these promises, and they've just done the exact opposite. As we've been reading through this book, we started off with some judges who, who were doing what God called them to do. 
go do this, deliver my people. And then with, Bar- with Barak last week, remember Deborah goes to him and says, God is calling you, and what does Barak say? Only if you go with me. And it's this, this slight, like imperceptible turn of this little dial of obedience. I'll go, but only if you go with me. But here's the thing. Mostly obedient is not obedient. Barak was called to do something, and he he put a little hesitation on it. He put a little qualifier on it. And here's what Gideon does with this dial. The Lord comes to him and says, I'm I'm going you to do this. And Gideon turns the dial cranks it. And then he completely ignores what the prophet has said, right? The people cry out for God. They get a prophet and the prophet tells them the truth. He says, you have wandered away from God and you're being judged. And what does Gideon do with that information? He's like, well, plays this little victim. Did you see that? Why is this happening? He's such a little baby. Why is this happening? I don't understand why these bad things are happening. And this prophet had just told them, you are sinners. You are facing my judgment because of your disobedience. Why is this happening? I wonder sometimes, like, if we hear ourselves in that. We know what God is calling us to do, and we don't do it. And then we, then we start to maybe deal with some of the consequences of our disobedience, right? And then we, we ask that question. Why is this happening? And God, I, lo- I, I love what God does. He says, well, Gideon, I'm sending you. And what does Gideon do? Who am I? I don't have the gift. I don't have the talent. I don't have any skills. I'm from this tribe. I'm from this clan. Who, I, who am I to help? I can't do anything. And again, I wonder, like, can, can you hear humanity in this? Can you hear yourself in this? And what Gideon does is he, he just continues to ask for signs. Did you notice that? Like, God, I know you told me that you were going to be with me, but I need you to prove it. So what does God do? He does, and then what does Gideon do? Well, you know, I need you to prove it again. And then God does, and then what does Gideon do? How about one more time? Like, I really want to make sure that I'm do that you this is really you. And I think I think for Gideon, his bottom line is. Is there are times where Gideon, like Gideon, just doesn't want to do what God wants him to do? So what he's going to do is like he's going to he's going to make up any excuse he possibly can and and do all of these tests and do all of these things to make God prove Himself. And I wonder if we can see ourselves in that story. If we can accept that this is, this is the reality of humanity, if only we could accept God's plan and purpose for our lives. 
Last week when Cody and I were talking about this message, he said, um, there's a fine line between asking to see God's will and using something as an excuse for disobedience. There's a fine line between asking to see God's will and using something as an excuse for disobedience. I think we live in that tension. And, and I want to tell you, this, this fleece example in Judges 6, it's not an example. I've heard so many Christians talk about, well, I'm going to set out my fleece. Well, see, even though it's not mentioned in here, that's the childish version of the story, isn't it? See, what we have by setting out this fleece is someone who is completely disobedient. They don't want to do what God has called them to do. So they're going to they're lay out this series of tests. And I think there are times where we, we think about this fleece like that's a good thing. Like, what's good about it? God has told them what he's going to accomplish. But it's not good enough for Gideon, and, and I think often it's not good enough for us. And maybe we're sitting here, we're like, well, where does God tell me what to do? Like, if God came to me and I set up this food on an altar and he lit it on fire, I would be obedient, right? Isn't that what you think? Question, how'd Gideon do with that? See, it's really easy for us to put ourselves in these Bible situations and think we would do better. But what we find is we read through the Old Testament, as we read through the New Testament, is just this consistent disobedience. And I would argue um, that God has told you what to do. He has, he's done something, he's given you something that they didn't have. He's given you his word. So let's, let's, see how, let's see how chapter 7 um, bears out for us. So you can follow along. So Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Herod. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, if you, have, you have too many warriors with you. So here you go. Gideon, you want a sign? Here it is. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they save themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is afraid, timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. But the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors to the water... The Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. If one group, in one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 men of the men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. Gideon, you want a sign? Here's your sign. So Gideon collected all the provisions and ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home. But he kept the 300 men with him. The Midianite camp was in the valley just below Gideon. Gibeon, yeah, Gideon. That night the Lord said, get up, 
go down into the Midianite camp, for I've given you victory over them. But if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged. Then you will be eager to attack. So Gideon took Purah and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. The armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts. Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore, too many to count. Gideon crept up just as a man was telling his companion about his dream. The man said, I had this dream, and in my dream a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It hit a tent and turned it over and knocked it flat. His companion answered, your dream can only mean one thing. God has given Midian, son of Joash, the Israelite victory over the Midian and all its allies. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped before the Lord. Then he returned to the Israelite camp and shouted, get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. He divided the 300 men into three groups and gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch in it. Remember, they didn't have weapons. We talked about that last week. Gideon, you want a sign? Then he said to them, keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. As soon as I and those with me blow all the ram's horns, blow your horns too, and all around the entire camp, listen carefully to what Gideon says next. And shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Let's, let's crank that dial a little bit. It was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. Suddenly they blew the ram's horns and broke their clay jars. Then all three groups blew, blew their horns and broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hand and the horns in their right hands, and they all shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! Each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. When the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Those who were not killed fled to places as far away as Bithshittah near Zerah and to the border of Abel-Meholah near Tabith. Then Gideon sent for the warriors of Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh who joined in chasing the army of Midian. Gideon also sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down to attack the Midianites. Cut them off at the shallow crossings of the Jordan River at Beth Barah. So the men of Ephraim did as they were told. They captured Oreb and Zeb, the two Midianite commanders, killing Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. And they continued to chase the Midianites. Afterward, the Israelites brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan River. You want a sign, Gideon? Here's your sign. 300. That's all you get. And none of them are going to have swords. They're going to have a ram's horn. They're going to have something that's, that's going to cover up a torch. And Gideon just can't help but add himself into this story. The guy who is so humble. Who am I to serve? Reveals himself. Let's finish out chapter 8. Then the people of Ephraim asked Gideon, why have you treated us this way? Why didn't you send for us when you first went out to fight the Midianites? And they argued heatedly with Gideon. 
But Gideon replied, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't even the leftover grapes of Ephraim's harvest better than the entire crop of my little clan of Ebiezer? Isn't Gideon so humble? God gave you victory over Oreb and Zeb, the commanders of the Midian army. What have I accomplished compared to that? When the men of Ephraim heard Gideon's answer, their anger subsided. Gideon then crossed the Jordan River with his 300 men, and though exhausted, they continued to chase the enemy. When they reached Sukkoth, Gideon asked the leaders of the town, please give my warriors some food. They're very tired, and I'm chasing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth replied, Catch Zia and Zumaluma first, and then we will feed your army. So Gideon said, After the Lord gives me victory over Zebra and Zalmunna, I will return and tear your flesh with the thorns and briars from the wilderness. Let's crank that, like how much, like let's turn this thing to 11. From there, Gideon went up to Peniel and again asked for food, but he got the same answer. So he said to the people of Peniel, after I return in victory, I will tear down this tower. By this time, Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with about 15,000 warriors, all that remained of the allied armies of the east, for 120,000 had already been killed. Gideon circled around by the caravan route east of Noba and Jogbaha, taking the Midianite army by surprise. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two Midianite kings, fled, but Gideon chased them down and captured all their warriors. After this, Gideon returned from the battle by way of the Harry's Pass. There he captured a young man from Sukkoth and demanded he write down the names of all 77 elders and, el and officials in the town. Gideon then returned to Sukkoth and said to the leaders, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna. When we were here before, you taunted me, saying, Catch Zeba and Zalmunna first, and then we will feed your exhausted army. Then Gideon took the elders of the town and taught them a lesson, punishing them with thorns and briars in the wilderness. He also tore down the tower of Peniel and killed all the men in the town. So pause. How's Gideon doing right now? Then Gideon asked Zeba and Zalmunna, the men you killed at Tabor, what were they like? Like you, they replied, they all had the look of a king's son. They were my brothers, the sons of my own mother, Gideon exclaimed. As surely as the Lord lives, I wouldn't kill you if you hadn't killed them. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword, for he was only a boy and was afraid. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said to Gideon, be a man, kill us yourself. So Gideon killed them both and took the royal ornaments from the necks of their camels. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. However, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from the plunder you've collected from your fallen enemies. The enemies, being Ishmaelites, all wore gold earrings. Gladly, they replied. They spread out a cloak, and each one threw in a gold earring he had gathered from the plunder. The weight of the gold earrings was 43 pounds, not including the royal ornaments and pendants, the purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains around the necks of the camels. Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Oprah, 
his hometown. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it, and it became a trap for Gideon and his family. That's the story of how the people of Israel defeated Midian, which never recovered. Throughout the rest of Gideon's lifetime, about 40 years, there was peace in the land. Then Gideon, son of Joash, returned home. He had 70 sons born to him, for he had many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem, also didn't make the toddler version, who gave birth to a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon died when he was very old and was buried in the grave of his father Joash as at Oprah in the land of the clan of Abiezar. As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal, making Baal Bereth their god. They forgot the Lord their God who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. Nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, despite all the good he had done for Israel. I don't want you to miss what's happening in this story. So Gideon has been called to do something. And instead of being transformed by his role, do you know what I mean by that? Instead of being transformed by his role, God comes to him, calls him out, says he's going to have victory. Gideon responds by being consumed with anger and power. And pride and arrogance flow through him. Now, here's the thing. Some of you right now who are really familiar with the Bible, what you're thinking right now, what some of you are thinking is, well, let's, well how about Hebrews 11? We find what we call the hall of faith. And it's, it's this list of all of these people from the Old Testament who exhibited great faith. And the thing is, if you're familiar with, with where I'm going with this, like Gideon's name is in that list. So as you think about that, like I want you to press pause because we're coming up on that. We're going to talk about why that's the case. But here in our story, we're finding someone who has been invited in to do what God has called him to do. And instead, he leads with fear and violence. What's really kind of interesting about this story, and there, well, there's a million things that are interesting about this story. The people offer to make him their king. And in this piety, he's like, oh no, I could never be king. Instead, what he does is he collects all the gold of the dead enemies and he, he melts it down and he creates this ephod. And I'm going to tell you what that is in a second. But as I'm reading that last week, we, we talked about this in our staff meeting, I couldn't help but think of the scene in Exodus. Remember Moses is up on the mountain and all the people are gathered together and they form a golden calf, right? And, and Moses comes down and he's like, Aaron, what in the world are you doing? And Aaron gives it the old, well, we put all this gold in the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> what I find so interesting about this story is, is there is no, like we put it in the fire and out came this ephod. 
See, we're just going to crank up the disobedience and we're just going to build something that we know is going to be an idol. And here's what an ephod, ephod is. It's, it's something that the priest would wear at the tabernacle. It was like a, like a, like a, kind of like an article of clothing. And it was only for the priest. Well, Gideon decides that he, have to ha- he has to have his own ephod. Which, if you're familiar with the rest of the book of Judges, in a few weeks we're going to read about a guy who, um, who has to have his own priest to tell him whatever he wants to. So as I was thinking about this, this ephod and this altar, I, I, think it's, I think it's kind of a cross between this religious artifact and a, uh, artifact and a war memorial. And what's interesting is the people worship it. The people prostitute themselves to it. It's a testimony to God's victory, but they believe it's a testimony to their victory, and we know that because they said, you and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. Not God. You, your son, and your grandson. And he's like, no, I'm not going to be a king, but he noticed, maybe you don't know this, but he names another one of his sons Abimelech. You know what Abimelech means? My father is king. I'm not going to be your king, but I'm going to name my son. My father is king. See, here's where we are in the story of Judges. God's people are wicked sinners who reject God. And while he judges their sin, he absolutely loves them and he sends them rescuer after rescuer after rescuer. And if we've been paying attention, we're starting to see that the rescuers are just as bad as the people. You notice that? And God's people are just as bad as the people that they were supposed to kick out of the promised land. And we have to start asking ourselves this question, what What is going on here? I don't understand this story. And and here's the thing. See, we need a Bible. We need a God and we need a Bible that's big enough to deal with reality. We need a theology of sin that accurately communicates that we are sinners. We are worthy of the wrath of God. And while there is wrath and there are consequences and there is judgment of sin, what he offers us anyway is his son, Jesus. See, he provides a way out for us. And that's, we talked about this a little bit last week. See, what we're talking about here is is the gospel. And the gospel has no room for morality Morality on its own says, I'm a good person. I mean, at least compared to everyone else. Right? That's what we think. That's what our culture teaches us. We are good moral people because I don't sin like them. I'm a good moral person because I have this list of things that I do. I, I don't go to rated R movies. I don't dance, drink, or chew, or go with those that do, which is a good policy. 
But see, in our morality, what we tend to do is, is we think that our morality is an end to itself. And it's not. And that's, that's, what, that's what this is. This is morality. And it's a kid's book, and it's fine. But if we've never moved past the kid's story, what we will do is we'll find ourselves engaged in morality. We'll find ourselves engaged in self-righteousness, which doesn't save us, because it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ that's, that's strong enough to bear the weight of reality. When we're reading through this text in Judges, like, we ought to be asking ourselves, who can fix this? Have you started to wonder that? Who is going to fix this story? Surely there's a judge somewhere that's going to fix this. We're, we're in a mess. We don't know what to do. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says this. There's nothing good that lives in me. Here's a, here's a theology of sin. Right? So if, if you want to know what I meant by a theology of sin, here's what I mean. Nothing good lives in us. This is Paul. I want to do what's right, but I can't. Anyone ever been there? I want to do the right thing, but I can't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. Anyone ever been there? I love God's law from the depth of my heart, but there's something else at work that is fighting me. Paul says, what a miserable person I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? Who's going to fix my problem? And then Paul tells us, he says, the answer is Jesus. That's the fix. That's the resolution. And what we're seeing in the book of Judges is this, this people who refuse to join God in his mission. They refuse to join God in his purpose for their lives. And the consequences are astounding. Chaos, death, and destruction. There are people who have been called to live lives that are set apart from the people in that land, and what do they do? They end up acting just like them. And as, as this book is going to pick up its pace, I know we're going slowly through it, but we're going to see like these, these building blocks of, of mostly obedient to engaging in violence beyond what I am called to do, to building my own ephod. Like it's only going to get worse. And this is a warning to us. It's a warning to every generation that follows because it begins with the idea that mostly obedient is not obedient. God doesn't want us to settle for mostly obedient because it ends in full-scale rebellion. Now, if you haven't read the end of the book, if you haven't read the last four chapters of Judges, get ready. Because it is a brutal description of what happens when people do whatever they want to do. See, God made us for a purpose, and in our sin, we reject him. And God, because he loves us, offers us his son. And we're not saved just to be saved. We're saved to respond to him and love others. 
And this is what Gideon didn't do. What he did was he took this offer to be involved and engaged in God's story and God's plan for his life, and he made it about himself. Do you see that in all three chapters, how he just made it about himself? He was completely disobedient. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how, how long are we going to go down this path? At what point are we going to, you know, pull the, pull the string on the bus and, like, get off? For you, if you've, if you've never made that decision to follow Christ, like, like when are you going to pull that handle? Because this is, this is your end. This is our end. Is chaos, death, and destruction. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would heed the warning that we're seeing in this text. That we would not make your salvation of us about us. That we would not settle for mostly obedient, because mostly obedient is disobedience. I pray that we would not let our pride and arrogance run away with us. I pray that we would heed the warning sign that is so clear to us that our way leads to destruction. I pray that we would see that you have given us your son, Jesus. And he is not a judge who will fail us, but he is a king who will reign and rule in complete righteousness over us. And it is that king that invites us to participate with him. Not just in reigning, but in his righteousness. It's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen.